Marie-Louise von Franz in her book on dreams and death quotes a dream reported by a doctor whose patient was an old woman. She sees a candle lit on the windowsill of the hospital room and finds that the candle suddenly goes out. Fear and anxiety ensue as the darkness envelops her. Suddenly, the candle lights on the other side of the window and she awakens. The doctor reported that the patient died that same day but was completely at peace. And although it's a very stark, very simple kind of dream, perhaps it shows us something about the tremendous healing power that dreaming can sometimes have. In her dream, the woman sees a candle on the windowsill of her hospital room and suddenly that candle is blown out just as her own life very soon is due to be extinguished. And then there is darkness and fear, probably a sense of isolation and despair, understandably so, because the woman hasn't chosen the removal of the light. It has been unexpectedly, suddenly, taken away from her. And yet, just as suddenly, just as completely outside of her control, the candle reappears, the light comes back. Although this time, mysteriously, the candle is positioned on the other side of the window. In terms of the waking world, that makes no sense at all. But this, perhaps, is why and how the logic of dreams can come to our assistance. Because things can happen in a dream and things can be revealed in dreams that we struggle to conceptualise in the rational waking world. To the doctor who reported that dream, evidently it had seemed as if that dream enabled the woman to pass through the fear and despair as death encroached upon her and find a powerful consolation some kind of certainty even in that image of the light reappearing on the other side of the window. A window is a physical boundary between two spaces but of course it's a boundary of a very special kind at the same time as it separates it facilitates a connection, a window enables us from one side to see quite clearly what's on that other side. In the woman's dream, she was shown that as she moved towards death, although 
there would be darkness and fear on this side. Nevertheless, there would be light on the other side. But if a window can serve in this way as an analogy for the transition or relationship between life and death, then maybe it can serve in other ways also. In chapter 3 of Emily Bronte's famous novel Wuthering Heights, Mr Lockwood is visiting his landlord Heathcliff and is unexpectedly snowed in and obliged to spend the night there. But he has trouble sleeping, not least because there's a branch tapping against the window of his room. I must stop it, I muttered, knocking my knuckles through the glass and stretching an arm out to seize the importunate branch. Instead of which, my fingers closed on the fingers of a little ice-cold hand. The intense horror of nightmare overcame me. I tried to draw back my arm, but the hand clung to it, and a most melancholy voice sobbed, Let me in, let me in. As it spoke, I discerned obscurely a child's face looking through the window. Terror made me cruel, and finding it useless to attempt shaking the creature off, I pulled its wrist onto the broken pane and rubbed it to and fro till the blood ran down and soaked the bedclothes. Still it wailed, let me in, and maintained its tenacious grip, almost maddening me with fear. How can I, I said at length, let me go if you want me to let you in. The fingers relaxed, I snatched mine through the hole, hurriedly piled the books up in a pyramid against it, and stopped my ears to exclude the lamentable prayer. Here then we have, again, a window in a dream, although the dream is also an encounter with a ghost, the ghost of Catherine Earnshaw. Heathcliff's former lover and a former occupant of the room in which Mr Lockwood is sleeping. Lockwood, looking through the window into the other side, encounters a dead person who's intent on coming inside and terrified he does all in his power to stop her. Such a contrast the dream of the old woman who is alive and moving towards death, unlike Catherine Earnshaw who is dead and trying to move towards the living. The dying woman encounters fear and darkness on her side of the window, but rather than doing everything within her power, to remain on that side. Unlike Catherine Earnshaw, it's as if she's able to let go because she has been shown that on the other side of the window there's light. 
the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein famously asserted that death is not an event in life. And similarly, perhaps, the ancient Greek philosopher Epicurus declared that death is nothing to us. What I want to do today, however, is to explore perhaps a different perspective. If the window serves as an analogy for the relationship between life and death, then could it be that death, rather than being that about which it is impossible to do or say anything, might instead possess a dynamic. In that dream of the dying woman and in Emily Bronte's Wuthering Heights, we see, perhaps, interactions between life and death and interactions in widely differing ways. If there is a dynamic to death, then it poses us with challenges, but also opportunities. The most notorious card in the tarot is perhaps death. If it weren't the case that a relationship to death is possible, then it's hard to see why that card needs to be there at all. Down the centuries, almost unanimously, death is depicted in the tarot as the personified figure of the skeletal Grim Reaper, often armed with a scythe, often on horseback, which links him to the figure of death in the New Testament book of Revelation, where death appears as one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In the depiction of this archetype in the Rider Waite deck, both death and his horse are larger-than-life figures towering over the human beings depicted in the card. Beneath death's horse lies a dead monarch, and before the horse cowers, a bishop, and a maiden, and a young child. Clearly, the implication here is that no type of person of whatever rank they may hold will escape death. In the Marseille deck, as ever, of course, the depiction is more minimalistic. Death here is a mummified, semi-skeletal figure, this time on foot, swinging his scythe over the ground, which is littered, messily it seems, with a couple of heads, a couple of pieces of bone, a few dismembered hands, and a single dismembered foot. But also among these, curiously, some shoots of grass pushing up through the soil. 
An odd possibility is suggested in the depiction of death in the Maasai deck, that perhaps, like the shoots of grass, could it be that the body parts have not fallen onto the earth, but are they pushing up through it? And what we're seeing is death slicing off hands and feet and heads as they attempt to emerge out of the soil. In the Rider Waite depiction, there's far more of a focus, perhaps, on what's on top of the soil. Kings and bishops and maidens. The sense here seems to be that death will lay them all low and they will sink into the receiving earth. Could it be that in the Marseille rendition of this card, things are actually moving in the opposite direction, body parts emerging up from the earth and then being cut down. Given what we've already considered through the analogy of the window, where we saw traffic between life and death moving in contrasting directions, I think this is a possibility that it's very interesting and potentially helpful to keep open. In Black Spring, a book of short stories by Henry Miller, we find the following. The cemetery, she said. Have you seen what they did to the cemetery? Who they are or were, I know not. I know only that they have taken the land and made it smile that they have taken the cemetery and made of it a fertile, groaning field. Every stone has been removed, every wreath and cross has vanished. Hard by my home now, there lies a huge, sunken checkerboard, groaning with provender. The loam is rich and black. The sturdy, patient mules sink their slender hoofs into the wet loam which the plough cuts through like soft cheese. The whole cemetery is singing with its rich, fat produce, singing through the blades of wheat, the corn, the oats, the rye, the barley. The cemetery is bursting with things to eat. The whole street is living now off the cemetery grounds. Plenty for everybody, more than enough. The excess provender goes off in steam, in song and dance, in depravity and recklessness. What Henry Miller captures there encapsulates some of what is going on in that depiction of death in the Marseille Tarot. The focus in the Rider Waite deck is maybe upon death from the side of life. It's what is going on above the soil that seems to matter here. But in the Marseille renditioning, there's very much a sense of things pushing up from beneath the ground, of something lively down there that wants to push its way up here. And the skeletal figure of death 
may be performing some sort of hygienic function by cutting it back down to size. In some versions of the Marseille deck, the ground as depicted on this card is coloured a deep, profound black. And where that's the case, the card stands out because no other card uses the colour black in quite that dramatic a way. Like the rich black loam in Henry Miller's description. The earth in the Marseille version of the death card conveys a sense of death and life all mixed up very intimately together. Most obviously of all, perhaps, that admixture of life and death is there in the figure of death himself. He looks like a corpse or a skeleton, but evidently he's moving around and is still an active participant in the material world. Lyle Watson, the biologist and anthropologist, writes in his 1974 book, The Romeo Era, about this permeable boundary between life and death. He makes the point that due to technological and medical advances, what might formerly have been considered as death now appears, in some cases, more like a temporary condition from which it's possible to recover. It becomes increasingly clear, Watson writes, that far from being an irrevocable fact, death is much more a function of the doctor-patient relationship, or indeed of any relationship. It begins to seem that our observations of life and death depend more on somebody's perception of somebody else than on anything that really happens. We have perhaps to stop saying things like poor Judd is dead when we only have Fred's word for it. All that can really be said is that a death occurred between Fred and Judd. It's very interesting, this idea that death and life are relative and that death could be something best understood in terms of a relationship. And even more interesting to see this idea issuing from somebody who's a trained biologist. But Watson seems to be saying that the science at the time he was writing had led him to the conclusion that death could perhaps be best understood as merely the absence of life and also vice versa that life is understood as the absence of death. There may indeed be some justification for taking the perspective that the two are always in relation to one another, together on some sort of single continuum perhaps, or some kind of inverse ratio to one another. Life, it might seem, is never more vital than when it's in proximity to a degree of death. 
And that's very conspicuously evident in Henry Miller's description of that cemetery. The dead have made that soil so fertile that now it's engendering, constantly reproducing so much edible material that the whole street now is living off the cemetery. But equally, although more likely perhaps to be overlooked, is the converse, that death is never more dead than when it's in proximity to life. And death perhaps needs life in order to fully and completely die. Who would have thought, writes Miller, that these bony Lutherans, these spindle-shanked Presbyterians, had such good fat meat left on their bones, that they could make such a marvellous harvest of corruption, such nestful of worms. The implication here is that these somewhat staid and orthodox ancestors have now completely vanished from the world and been replaced with something bounteous and joyful that's far removed from their nature. And it's the forces of life that have enabled this transformation of the dead. It was the proximity of bacteria and worms that has enabled the dead to vanish thoroughly from the material world and be replaced by something utterly not themselves. When we're considering the impact of this archetype upon our everyday lives, when we're confronting loss, death, radical change, bereavement, transformations, reinventions and the general ending of things, this perspective of life and death being on a continuum and the possibility of the traffic on that continuum being always possibly two-way, then maybe this can be helpful. In some cases, for instance, we may not want to proceed in the direction along which life is compelling us. And so we die to the world a little bit. Sometimes maybe a depression could take that form. Sometimes dying to the world might be a way of clinging on to and keeping alive something inside ourselves that actually may have outlived its purpose. In that case, a helpful response might be to kill off whatever it is that's holding us back. A little more by way of death might be helpful in getting us back on life's path once again. And then we have to admit that the converse may also be a possibility. Sometimes things that have died, things that we've left behind, they can insist on coming back, insist on trying to assume a life of their own. If we look carefully, we may discover that despite appearances, these things don't really have 
anything to offer us in life. They're not going to grow and develop and take us somewhere as living things inevitably do. An example might be an addiction of some type, an attraction to something that <laughs> appears to offer pleasure, excitement, but it's not really doing that. It's just leading us back into states of mind that are all too familiar and that it would have been better for us if we'd left them behind years ago. Sometimes here, a helpful response might be to turn up the dial on life. Instead of giving the addiction our attention, if we can turn instead to more truly vital things, to find that excitement and pleasure and follow those instead, then, in effect, we might say it was the force of life that has enabled that addiction to properly fade away at last and just drop out of existence. The dynamics of this archetype make themselves felt also, perhaps, in the sphere of culture and politics. On the 7th of June in 2020, in the city of Bristol in the UK, a bronze statue of a man named Edward Colston, who died in 1721, was pulled down by anti-racism demonstrators who were protesting against the murder of George Floyd in the United States. The statue was rolled away by the protesters from its site in an area of parkland down to Bristol Harbour and pushed into the water. Long before the murder of George Floyd, the statue had become a focus of controversy in the city. The statue had been erected in 1895, ostensibly as a memorial to the supposedly philanthropic activities of Colston during his life. But what had become apparent through historical research was that the immense personal wealth that Colston enjoyed during his lifetime and which had funded his charitable activities. A substantial part of this came from his direct involvement in the slave trade. During the time that he was an active member of the Royal African Company, this company transported 84,000 people from West Africa into slavery in the Americas. After the toppling of Colston's statue in Bristol, a debate opened up about whether monuments to other slave traders and colonialists should be allowed to stand. What could be a more vivid example of something dead that should have passed away years ago but is still clinging on to life than the statues of these men whose ethics and ideals are now so 
out of kilter with the majority of people alive today. These statues are likenesses of human bodies cast in bronze. The whole purpose of them is to signify that here is somebody who chooses or has been nominated to avoid dying an ordinary and natural death. But Colston would have had no means of understanding the ideological forces that led to the toppling of his statue. When things that are dead find a means to endure beyond that death and impose themselves on the world of life, then perhaps ultimately it will be the forces of life that prove their nemesis. The artist Banksy, who is based in Bristol, proposed that Colston's statue should be reinstated but augmented with additional statues of the protesters, all of them together in a tableau of the moment in which Colston's statue was pulled down. I don't think we should expect that people will cease from erecting monuments to the dead anytime soon, but it's maybe worth reflecting that Banks's idea, if it were ever implemented, could it be that this attempt to immortalise a moment, just like any other, is doomed to being itself overturned one day? And if that were for reasons that were genuinely progressive, they will be impossible for us to conceive. We being, of course, the future dead.